out of Memphis. How do they not have a hundred story skyscraper downtown Memphis? Right? Like, how is that possible? Well, when Dr. King was assassinated, that sent downtown Memphis into a death spiral. All right, Stephen, what's up, man? How you doing? Doing good, man. How about yourself? I'm good. It's a Monday afternoon. It's nice and sunny outside. It stopped raining. Everything's nice out here. <laughs> so, Stephen, all right, you and I grab coffee. Was that last yeah. week? I think it was last week. Or the week before that? Uh, week before about that. like three. I think it was like three weeks ago, actually. Something, something like that. Anyway, you, <laughs> yeah. you had one of like just the most fun stories to just talk through with. So I was like, hey, man, I got a podcast. You want to do it? And you were like, sure, let's do it. Yeah. So Stephen Brown, who 10,000 foot view. Who are you to folks who have no idea who you are? What's your story? Yeah, man. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. So that's actually one of the things that uh, we have in common. Um, is that we grew up blocks apart, probably like, I think with, within 10 minutes apart, 10, 15 minutes, mom was in the military. She got out, we moved back to Memphis and, you know, we, we, we stayed in a very low income area after some time. My mom was like, you know, right, we got to do something else. So we moved to St. Louis, went to school in St. Louis, uh, pretty diverse school. If anyone knows jumping from an education system from the city of Memphis to one of the top public schools in the U.S. is very challenging. So overcame that and um, got a scholarship to go to Iowa State. Went there for ROTC, commissioned as an Army officer, um, as an aviation pilot. Went down to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Spent two years there, time of my life. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Got stationed at Fort Campbell. Got out this past summer and I've been doing, I started my own business and uh, been loving it, you know, ever since. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to unpack for us there. So (laughs) I think this is super interesting because my wife was a teacher for many years and Mm -hmm. uh, she taught in elementary school. Let's, let's unpack that comment a little bit going from what at the time was Memphis city schools, which doesn't exist anymore. So going from Memphis city schools to, like you said, one of the top public schools in the country like yeah. talk how old were you and talk me through that child's experience and WTF moment when he realizes what's <laughs> happening yeah man great question man going from Memphis City Schools was a big shock uh to to, to the St. Louis County School District um it was a big shock culturally it was a big shock academically because I was absorbing a lot of change at once and I'd spent nine about nine weeks in Memphis City Schools in high school before in the ninth grade before I moved to to St. Louis. So automatically, I went from being in honors classes in in Memphis to being in honors classes in St. Louis, and it pretty much smacked me in the face, man. I was not ready at all. You know, it wasn't apples to apples, and I think the guidance counselors struggled on what to do with me because they thought that. You know, rolling me back into regular classes would be a, a mentality hit, but I was like, a, you know, a mental hit. But I was like, no, I gotta go. I, I can't keep up. You know, like there's there's a gap here culturally. It was it was great because you know I was in Memphis City. The the demographics is just drastically where you know African Americans and Latinas are very much the majority. You know, I went to school with a lot of African, African-Americans as well, um, like actually from Africa, you know, so that going from that and like less than a week going to and very heavily 
where you are the minority population was a huge just adjustment for me. And I, I, I struggled with the, I struggled with that transition a lot because I, I truly didn't understand what was going on. Um, so it, it took me a while to feel comfortable because I, I thought that I felt like I had to be someone else, you know, and I, and I wasn't truly being myself, um, in that, in that sense. And I, and I struggled, I struggled for about a year until I figured it out. So, but yeah, so. Hopefully that gives what do you mean you a by you, you weren't being yourself? What do you mean by that? Um, I think when you come from Memphis, um, you know, everyone called me Memphis. You know, that was my nickname um, in high school. Right. Yeah, they called me Memphis. And um, and I felt like I had to to maintain that image of what someone mm. came from Memphis is, you know, supposed to be like. Because, you know, St. Louis at the time. You were, just walking, Louis and, you were just walking around the hallway just checking people? Like just out of nowhere? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't say that, but um, uh, yeah, I I um, I wouldn't that was say an inside that. Inside joke but... for anybody from Memphis. By the way. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that. I I would say I I had the image that I was tough and I couldn't be. You know, uh, no one can mess with me. But in actuality, that that wasn't the case. The case that was I was I was very scared and you know nervous about like all of the you know, adjustments that I was, you know, kind of going through at the time. So, yeah. I mean, you were what, 14, 15. It's okay to be scared. Yeah, 14. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's okay yeah. not to have the whole world figured out at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. I figured that out the hard way. So, but no, like I was saying, so at the time, Memphis and St. Louis, East St. Louis, they were having this, you know, war who could be the baddest city, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and who could, yeah. So, that was that was what I was, you know, coming, and I just struggled with trying to find my image all throughout high school and what I was comfortable with and what I liked and just a lot of different things. So interesting. So so you know, talk to me about you go from freshman year to senior year. Obviously, obviously, there's just like the changes in yeah, you know, the maturity you go through during that time period in general. But what was the difference between Stephen, you know, coming in freshman year to Stephen leaving senior year, graduating from there? Yeah, no, great question. I would say it's one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't fully take advantage of what um, my high school had to offer. When I came in, in in the ninth grade, I was just I was just a disgruntled teen. We have this uh, class called Academic Lab, and we have it every other day, you know. But it's like the same group of people throughout all four years of high school. You know, and the, the purpose of Academic Lab is to do homework and go walk around, talk to your teachers and, you know, but a large portion portion of it is socializing. And I was more so on the socializing aspect of it and I really didn't take advantage of it. But my teacher at the time, I was just, I was, I was very uh, rebellion. I was a rebellious to her, you know, I just, I didn't want to be controlled. I didn't, you know, I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And then I slowly realized that this behavior isn't sustainable and this behavior isn't like truly like what the rest of the world will allow to happen. So when I got as a 12th grader, I had a great mentor, my principal, um, he used to be an army officer. We still keep in touch to today. And, you know, he essentially just checked me, you know, he said, Hey man, like I was about to get into a fight with one of these, this basketball player. He's like, Hey man, you need to figure your stuff out. And he took me in his office and I sat there and he was like, what are you doing for college? During that time frame, I sat there and I was just like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, this is my senior year of high school. I don't know what I'm doing in college. I don't, I didn't, I didn't, at the time I didn't think I could get in, you know, cause it was mm. deemed to be this very prestigious, you know, institution that only smart people got in and people with money 
you know, so I'd scramble, try to figure, trying to figure out how exactly, you know, I can, I can go to, to school. So I eventually figured it out. And once, once that happened, then, you know, the sky was the limit, man. I went off to, to Iowa state where I earned a four year scholarship and I just never looked back and I, and I became so obsessed and passionate about being in the military and, you know, being a part of a, a team and, you know, and doing good, you know, which was a huge part of it all. So. So why do you, what do you think helped cultivate that mindset of it's only for smart people and, and people with money? Um, that's a great question. I, I haven't really like thought about that. I, I would say that a lot of it came from just believing in myself, you know, and like comparing myself to other people. Like, I was like, if that guy got it in the college, I should definitely be able to college. But one, and I would say this. So I was, my, my GPA was absolute crap. You know, I think I had like, like a 2.8, you know, but I'd done really well in ACT. I was in, I think the, um, uh, top like 10%, you know, and I, I didn't even study for it. You know what I mean? And it was just like, you're just a great test taker in here. Yeah. Good good problem solving skills. Yeah. And, um, and my writing was actually, it went really well as well, which helped me out. And I think that was a big confidence booster for me, you know, cause at first I thought when I got the test back, I was, I was like, this, this something has to be wrong. You know, this, this isn't right. And then I took the test again and I scored even higher after I went to like, this prep <laughs> class. So that's, that was the point where I was like, all right, I can do this. So I had, um, I interviewed with Iowa State and their professor of military science. PMS is what they call him. He's now the CEO of a um, COO of a uh, Fortune 500 company, but he was my professor and he believed in me, man. And that was from the phone interview and like just not even meeting me, but just talking to me. He believed in me. And that was enough motivation. That was all the motivation I needed to get out there and uh, mm. and and commit myself to that. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So what do you, I guess part of it is, is just so interesting because your life trajectory is so crazy in a lot of ways, because like we talked about, like going to Memphis city school in North Memphis, where you're living, everybody looked like you and everybody came from the same economic background as you period. I mean, you would have maybe gone to like what Tresvent for high school. I went Uh, to, I actually went to Kingsbury for high school. Okay. Kingsbury going to the school in St. Louis and then going to Iowa state which I don't know anything about Iowa state, but I, I <laughs> probably fair to say it's one of the whitest places on earth. Um, it is. Yeah. No, <laughs> <from> it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> not a lot of diversity there, but to guess, and you know, what was great though. What was great is that like when I went there, I never, I never had any issues about like race. It was never an issue. It was like, what can you do? You know, yeah. what can you, you, well, you had some of the RTC. guys, yeah. Well, I mean, you had some of the guys that I remember this one guy, he just, he came from a very traditional conservative like background and like, he wasn't unfair, but like he was, he was a pain in the ass, you know, and he'd say some off comments and, you know, we'd get into it, but there was a mutual level of respect. And that was about as like bad as it got, got for the most part, but everyone else, man, it was it was just love and respect. And like, I, I truly loved being in Iowa. Some of the nicest people I've ever met. So. Oh, I, I believe it. That, it's, that sounds like nice people country. 
It's the what country they, for sure, man. What, 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 what do they grow out there? Potatoes? Is that what they grow in Iowa? No, that's <laughs> corn, Idaho. Corn, man. Corn. Yeah, yeah, that's no, right. Sorry. It's corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they grow corn and run through farmer's fields and tip over cows for fun. So uh, it was great. I, I love the college experience, man. It was It was what I needed, you know, mm-hmm. because like I was out on my own and I was really finding out who I was and like pushing myself like physically, mentally, leadership wise, you know, one of the, the hardest things you'll, you'll ever learn is leading your peers, you know, leading people mm, on the yeah. same level as you, cause it is challenging and it is tough and, you know, but that's how I, you know, that's how I got through it. And, but it was a fun time. I, I'd do it again if I could. So. Yeah. You go back in time, go back to college. Yeah. Just some a little bit. I mean, I, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I don't mean to kind of shift topics, but I think one of the things that intrigued me so much about you is that like, you know, like you're down the street, man, you know, like I grew up around a lot of like, you're down the street. And like, I grew up around a lot of, I would say a lot of different ethnicities, but I think this is, I didn't, I didn't know that the immigration population was so big in Memphis, you know, when it came to African-Americans it came from. Yeah. Back then I didn't know that. You know, so like after you and I talked back then in particular, dude, you couldn't. So this is like, think like uh, 1997, like 2001, 2002, Mm -hmm. you had all kinds of folks from all over the place, uh, specifically in that part of Memphis, like in between uh, what was Dixie Homes, if you remember that, that, that those projects got torn down. So you had Dixie Homes, like there were small little pockets where a lot of immigrants would get put, like there was a place called Off Meriwether Street where all kinds of Vietnamese folks, all kinds of Bosnians, such as myself, uh, yeah. a lot of Nigerians, Guatemalans, all the way through like North Memphis, Watkins, Cleveland, all that into like Midtown. Like at the time, Memphis was a hot place for refugees in particular because it was yeah. low cost of living. So you, you like you weren't placing people in San Francisco where they would never be able to afford anything. So low cost of living, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of unskilled jobs, like jobs for unskilled yeah. mm-hmm. people, which... Yeah. You know, it's unfair to say unskilled because a lot of these people were super educated and super smart. Like my dad is very well educated, but when you come to America without speaking a word of English, you're unskilled labor. So you got to figure something out. Mm-hmm. And then I've, I've ranted about this on, on the podcast before, but the Catholic charities of West Tennessee is like, like godsend. I mean, they were, they were incredible when it came to placing families, finding apartments, you know, taking care mm-hmm. of them, feeding them, uh, getting ki- kids vaccinated, getting kids into schools, you know, all those different things. So the infrastructure was really there. I don't know how it is today, but yeah, man, like if you, if you were specifically around, like where Poplar and, and, and Cleveland and Watkins and all those streets meet, like it was yeah. all immigrants. Yeah. And I, and I didn't see that. And I, and it's, and it's so weird because like I was surrounded by people that looked like me, you know, like yeah, even I mean, when I like moved, two miles north. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like, but I, I moved quite a couple times. Like my grandmother stayed in North Memphis and the Goodwood villages, but my mom, you know, maybe for two or three years, we lived in Frasia. We lived in Raleigh, you know, and it was, it was the same type of, you know, environment, the same people that kind of looked very similar to me. So when you, but when you told me that I was doing some research and Memphis was a, a big hub for immigrants, you know, I was like, man, I, I did not know that. I didn't know Memphis was so diverse and culturally it is. Well, the thing that happens is once these immigrants 
And again, this is anecdotal evidence. So I'm just going off yeah. of my own family's experience, the people that we knew and, and the people that I went to school with, et cetera. Once these immigrants get some sort of footing, they just kind of, they move out of wherever they were placed. Like, yeah. dude, our apartment complex got shot up like four months in the living there. My parents are like, we got to get the hell out of here. Like, I don't care how hard <laughs> we got to work, but we got to go. And I didn't yeah. even know that because I was in school when it happened. It, my dad didn't tell me until years later, like the apartment right below us got shot up. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So a lot of these immigrants, like they will work and then they'll move out of where they were placed, wherever that may have been. And then they just kind of start fitting in with whatever group of people that they look like. So like my family, like we're obviously white Europeans. So we just start looking yeah. and fitting in with wherever the, you know, whites are, or, you know, some of the yeah. maybe Nigerian kids uh, uh, that live yeah. next to me, like they just blend into the African-American community or, so you yeah. kind of lose that. You kind of, there's no, no quote, like, as you would say back in the day, like ethnic ghettos, like where a bunch of, yeah. you know, Italians live in one part of town that doesn't yeah. really happen anymore, at least not in Memphis. So I, I think that's no. where a lot of that lack of awareness comes from because it, that, that doesn't necessarily exist to that degree. Yeah, I think my uh, the biggest eye opening kind of when I knew Memphis was was very different is Memphis in May. I remember as a as a teen, I, I went once and I just saw it was like the first time I'd been out of like where I lived, mm. you know. And like I just remember just like seeing so many people like all different colors, all different you know races, just all combined like together and like enjoying themselves, you know, until, you know, shots are fired and then, you know, everyone has to go home early, but (laughs) that's just, you know what I mean? It's kind of crazy if you ask me, but I really hope that Memphis can continue to to develop, um, continue to uh, improve. I I think there's a lot of businesses and a lot of things kind of going that way. So it it all looks positive. So I'm pretty excited to see what Memphis can become. There's a lot of opportunity and I don't want to make this a Memphis podcast per se, but like for people who are listening who don't know anything about Memphis, like one of the things that's really interesting about Memphis is historically speaking, Memphis is one of the most segregated cities in America Um, from a pure geographic standpoint. So African-Americans are the majority in the city. They make about, depending on who you ask, anywhere between 55 to 60% of the population. So it's one of those rare cities in the United States where uh, it's a minority majority city if you don't have the means to get out of your environment. So like that Memphis and May experience is really interesting. You making that comment because I've had that conversation with other folks before that come that have your, a similar background where they were like, Whoa, why do I not see this regularly? And unfortunately part of it is because it is historically such a segregated city where, you know, majority of white folks live out East, you know, majority of Hispanics live in, like the center northeast, like the Nutbush area, et cetera. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a it's a it's a complicated and difficult story to tell a lot of the time, but it's super interesting when you actually get to peel back the onion and just explore somebody's background. Yeah, I think the I mean, I think the only other like very segregated city is um in Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah Milwaukee um, is very segregated. Yeah, I think Milwaukee is very segregated. Um and it's funny because I have a lot of friends from Wisconsin. Um, and we talk about it a lot. So, and I don't, honestly, I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, how do you, how do you merge these cultures? I mean, it, it, it seems like it's almost like it's inevitable that it's going to always be that way. I think a big part of it. Well, I mean, okay, let's look at the history of Memphis, why Memphis is the way it is. So historically Memphis was a dominantly white city until about the turn of the century, about 1900, 1910. And what happened was freed 
slaves and their children um, and grandchildren started moving up from the rural delta in Mississippi where they had been slaves. You know, you don't build plantations in the middle of the city. That's not how it works. You know, like right. it's out in the countryside because yeah. you need space. And they were moving up north. And what happened was it was one of it was the great migrations. So that's when a lot of African Americans moved to Detroit, New York, Chicago, but a lot of them moved from the rural south into the urban south. So moving into places like Memphis and Memphis what like Go go ask any African American and uh, I've had this conversation on this podcast before. Go ask any African American in Memphis. Hey, you got family in Mississippi? Every single one of them is going to be like, yeah, <laughs> like my grandpa came mm-hmm. from there or whatever. Um, yeah. And the, that's the history of it. And and then the white population in Memphis, particularly during desegregation, white flight was very prevalent. So so there was this mass migration east in Shelby County. So you end up with this weird like two worlds that really comes together in the sixties and solidifies in the seventies. And it's just now that a lot of that mixing of cultures is happening by the revitalization of a lot of that inner core that was left abandoned, you know, cause in order for a building to be decrepit, somebody had to build that building initially, you know what I mean? Like it had to have had some sort of use economically at one point. Yeah. Um, and now with a lot of revitalization, a lot of the money coming in, I mean, the Sears Roebuck building, the giant concrete building and over uh, off of Cleveland, I mean, that thing was abandoned for 30 years and now Laboners come in and revitalized it and there's condos there for doctors and there's an ice cream shop on the first floor and, you know, girls are walking their dogs and, you know, at any time of the day. So, you know, it's a safe neighborhood and that's mind boggling to me because to me, that's where you went to get killed. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so from a from a from a from a danger standpoint i mean it was an abandoned giant building that's like the perfect combination for something bad to, I, I think a lot of it just comes down to just people being willing to come out of their comfort comfort zones and exploring different cultures and areas and environments and you know just coming together and being like hey look like these flight situations that happen don't have to exist like we can live together and we should live together because why not i don't know that was a long way and i don't know if i actually said anything no i think you said a lot i mean you had a lot of good points i i mean i agree i i know memphis at some point kind of going from demographics to more so economics it was set to be better than nashville you know like Mm -hmm. At the time, you know, we were living there, Memphis Memphis was on the rise. Mm-hmm. You know, it had the infrastructure, it had the businesses coming, you know, it was- It was the largest city the in Tennessee at the time. Yeah, you know, and like, you, you can say that, you know, now it's the inverse, you know, like now Nashville's on, you know, on top when it comes to growth. It's, it's I think it's number seven or number eighth um, in the country for the fastest growing city. Yeah, I, don't I mean, think you and I both live in Nashville, not Memphis for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I think there's a lot of good opportunities in Nashville. And I, and I, you know, 100%. but I also, I know that Memphis is, it, it'll come back. It, it's, I, I've seen some of the business plans and, and people that are invested into Memphis. And I think it, it is interesting because, you know, um, I have a, I, I get a lot of hotel data. So like, there's a lot of hotels being developed in Memphis anticipating, you know, some events coming and like, they're building these outdoor sports facility, you know, like yeah. the infrastructure could always support this stuff. You know, when you compare it to Nashville, the infrastructure in Memphis is amazing. Like the interstate system is amazing. You know, yeah. the, the roads is, are not cramped. Yeah. You know, you, you've got yeah. like four lanes everywhere you turn. 
it's actually on a grid, so it makes sense. Unlike this ridiculous city we live in where nothing makes sense and everything's a pain in the ass to get to. I mean, Nashville has a lot of growth in that, but I, I know they've they got um, approved for a uh, Department of Transportation you know, build to kind of improve the infrastructure here in Nashville. But I think it's going to be a minute before it's like it gets better. You know, and by a minute, I mean like 10, 15 years. So, yeah, my kids will be going to college. Like that's how. <laughs> 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 like, yeah. Well, so I got a question for you. How did you end up in Nashville? Oh, how did I end up in Nashville? I don't think I've ever actually talked yeah. about this on the podcast. I was living in Knoxville. I hated living in Knoxville. I love going to college in Knoxville, but hated living in Knoxville afterwards. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong in Knoxville with Knoxville per se, uh-huh. but it's a small town. I'm just not a small town guy. Like I'm just not interested. Other folks lo- absolutely love it and more power to them. Yeah. But for me, it just wasn't the deal. So I'm in Knoxville. I'm in financial planning at the time, building out my practice. My parents lived, obviously still live in Memphis. So I thought, okay, so six hours to Memphis to go visit my parents, six hours to go to a Grizzlies game, which I still love doing. That's really not worth it. I don't want to stay in Knoxville. Do I want to go to Charlotte? That's an opportunity. Do mm-hmm. I want to go to Atlanta? That's an opportunity. Great city, man. Charlotte's yeah. great city. Or do I want to go to Nashville? And this is 2014. So Nashville's just on fire. I mean, dude, it is just booming. You think it's booming right now? It was booming. So it just, it just made sense. Like I love the ethos of the city. I I say that all the time. Like I just love the vibe and the Mm -hmm. culture and the feeling of like, just almost the philosophy of the city. You don't meet anybody in Nashville, in Nashville who hates Nashville. Like, yeah, we can complain about certain things, but everybody likes living here. Like it's just just kind of a thing. Like you're happy to be here, which is contagious. And it was only two and a half, three hours from Memphis. So like, that's a day trip home to mom and dad. Yeah. Uh, That's a, that's literally like, Oh, Grizzlies are playing tonight in the playoffs. I just bought some tickets, called my dad and said, Hey, I'm taking you to the playoff game tonight. And he's like, cool. And I said, I'll, I'll leave in a couple hours and I'll see you then. Like, yeah, it's, it's easy. So, and I didn't really want to go back to Memphis because at the time Memphis was still, Memphis wasn't seeing the potential that I was seeing. And I love, there's no city on, there's no city in America that I want to see do better than Memphis. Like I I root for them so hard, but they got to get out of their own way. And I think a lot of it, they have gotten a lot out of their own way in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I've, I've been in Knoxville once. It's an interesting city for sure. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually like Chattanooga a lot more, uh, but Memphis, Memphis, you know my wife Memphis both. too. Oh, really? She loves Chattanooga. She went to college there and, and Chattanooga is cool. Again, small town though. So I'm not about it. Yeah. Uh, but Memphis is due. I, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of potential, you know, for, for the growth of Memphis and especially, I think the people deserve it. You know what I mean? So, you know, so I think with the current things on the, on the agenda, Memphis can be, can gain a lot, you know, um, business wise, economic wise, and cause it is a culturally diverse city and there's a lot of, they call it like the black dollar, a lot of black dollars there, you know? So, and I, I'd like to see where, where it's going to end. So, but well, Nashville is like, and Memphis got like the, like just got really unlucky at times. So, yeah, I was going to say, I, I think, I feel like, I don't know, I didn't really see this, but this is what I heard is like a lot of it came from when Katrina hit. Interesting. I, I don't yeah, really know what, like, tell me about it. You all, well, I think the, the theory is that like when Tr- Katrina came, it, it came with a, a vast majority of people from New Orleans that moved into Memphis. It's just like uh, a couple of the surrounding, you know, cities, crime went up. And a lot of other things, you know, kind of went up as well. I don't think that's like this, the main contributing factor, but a lot of people say that that's 
where it kind of started and in addition to politics as well. I don't know who was the mayor at the time, but I, I know there was a lot of issues with corrupt politics, but um, I'm not really educated up on it, to be honest. So. Yeah, I can't really speak on that topic because I don't I don't know. I, I I've never really looked into that. I mean, I was in high school when Katrina happened, but you know what? I mean, one of the things like, and this is a, just a good lesson in just like how certain events can shape an environment that we live in. One of the big reasons, like if you ever go to downtown Memphis, you're like, where are all the brand new tall buildings? Like all the skyscrapers are like 50 years old. Right. And whereas you go to Nashville, like everything's made out of glass, like fed freaking FedEx is headquartered out of Memphis. How do they not have a hundred story skyscraper downtown Memphis? Right. Like, yeah. how is that possible? Well, when Dr. King was assassinated, that sent downtown Memphis into a death spiral. So much so that the National Guard had to come in and like sh- like shut down the city for a time. All the- like the Peabody Hotel was closed for a decade after that. Like that one single event, you can pretty much pinpoint to have killed the downtown area. And um, obviously that event is tragic for a million other reasons besides <laughs> the economic impact to downtown Memphis. But, you know, that is a consequence of it. So. You know, oftentimes when we have conversations with people, I think we as human beings, we just don't consider like all the historical aspects that happen that get us to a certain point that good or bad to where we're in a certain situation. Um, where did you, where did you learn about that? Like that I, was it your parents or. No, I remember reading about, I'm just a history nerd. So I remember, okay. I remember being confused on like, why does, quite frankly, I remember thinking like when I was, I don't know, 17 or 18, like why does Memphis downtown suck so bad? compared to other downtowns. Mm-hmm. Like, why is Atlanta's downtown so much better? Why is Nashville's downtown, even back then, so much better? Why is freaking Little Rock's downtown better? What's the deal? Why Why are all the businesses in this city headquartered out east on the Poplar Corridor? Why is International Paper out there? Why is FedEx out there? Why is AutoZone out there? What, you, you know, why, name it. Whereas in all these other cities, they're downtown, there's vibrance, there's, there's a robust infrastructure, et cetera. So I started digging into it. And I remember reading that. I, I can't name you like the book or the information, but that, that was a thing that happened. I mean, just learning that the Peabody was closed for a decade was shocking to me. I mean, Bill Street was a- I didn't know that, man. Bill Street, before 1990, fun fact, because Bill Street's like world-renowned, world-known. You, you did not go to Bill Street before 1990. The city used eminent domain, took the Bill Street, like basically uh, just uh, 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 just kidnapped the street, turned it into pedestrian only, revitalized, and then sold it back out. Like before then, you went to Bill Street to buy drugs. Like it was not a good part of town. Yeah, man, I'm about to get right up on it because I'm, I'm very curious to understand it from that standpoint. It's yeah, super because that actually would make yeah I think that would make a lot of sense you know man I, I I didn't know Peabody Place was was closed for ten years that's that's insane yeah, I think it was during the seventies that it was closed down completely like the ducks and everything like this historic beautiful hotel just not in operation man and that's, that's a huge that's a tourist yeah. attraction now like people come there to, from all over the world to see it and that's ten years of millions and millions and millions of dollars missed out on yeah yeah so i couldn't imagine how many people were like deterred uh, from coming to memphis after after martin luther king's death yeah i mean think about how big of a stain that is on your city yeah it's horrible it's huge it's horrible you know like and it's already a tense environment in the country particularly in the south at the time Like, like that wasn't an easy time to be alive 
especially if you're an African-American. No, not at all. <laughs> so like, at all. like the, the temperature was already sizzling and now this event happens. Oh, and this event happens in your city. Oh, and this event happens in your city when this man is here for a sanitation strike. Yeah. What, what does that do? There's for every, for every action, there's a, there's a reaction. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how you handle that situation. You know, like, honestly, I, I've dealt with some pretty crappy situations throughout my time in the military and, you know, just life. And like, that is just, that's, it's such a powerful moment, you know, because like, there's a lot of emotions tied to it. And it's a lot of just, there's already, you know, a divide between the communities, you know, yeah. and especially back then. pretty much. Yeah. Especially back then, man. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely going to have to educate myself on kind of that time period in Memphis, you know, history, because that's very intriguing to me. And I'm, I'm very curious as to what some of the historians and what some of the, you know, social science, you know, scientists, you know, uh, were able to gather from that. So I'm very curious. So. Well, and I also want to make it very clear. I mean, I can't speak for you, but I'm assuming you feel the same way. Like, this is just two people who didn't intend a podcast that turned into a Memphis podcast, but this is two <laughs> people who grew up in a city, who love a city, who have fond memories of a city, who want the city yeah. to succeed, just discussing some of the issues that we saw and experienced growing up there. Let me make something very clear. I think Memphis is one of the coolest cities to visit. Like if you've never been, go visit. You will love it. It's got an obnoxious yeah. amount of character as a city. No, I, I, I would concur with that. I, I, I went to visit for the first time since I had left. Mm. I left in, I guess, 2006. And it was probably around 10 years before I came back. And um, I stayed downtown at the um, the hotel right across the street from the FedEx Forum. My family's like in Midtown. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I was like, this could be an awesome city. Like it's, 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 it's beautiful. It has a lot of character. Like Bill street is way different than Broadway. You know, it's way different. Oh than, yeah. Um, I would pick yeah, Bill street right. any day. Yeah. It's way different. Same concept, but way different, different vibe. And like, you got people performing out in the middle of the street, you know, you got people drinking on the middle of the street. Everyone's having a good time, you know? Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed that about the city. And I think that there's a lot of room for, for growth and improvement. And I think, I think it's getting there, man. I, I think within the next like five to 10 years, like Memphis is, it's going to be the talk, you know, Tennessee, you know, next to Nashville, of course. But, but yeah, and honestly, I, I, I could see myself moving back there, mm. you know, well, real estate's um, a hell of a lot cheaper. Want. You can buy a lot more house than you can here. <laughs> I do miss that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was actually looking today because, you know, I'm, I'm big into real estate. There's a lot of good multifamily like options out there. So a lot of opportunities. Um, yeah. A lot of opportunities, especially in the land of real estate there. So, but, but yeah, I, we did not intend for this to be a Memphis podcast though. That's true. But Hey, hey I, I am curious. So what are you, like, we didn't really talk about this when you and I got together. So talk to me mm -hmm. about like just your, your interest in real estate, multifamily in particular, because I'm all about educating folks on different ways to make money and, uh, yeah. on the podcast. And I love just hearing creative ways people make money. Yeah. So I, I, I don't own any multifamily units. Um, I do own short-term rentals, you know, so I, I like the real estate and destination places because it's, you know, obviously it's, I wouldn't call it pandemic proof because, you know, but you, you, if you own a condo in Florida, 
you know, during the pandemic, you know, it was, it was booked up, you know, like, so I like destination places cause I like places that I can go to and, you know, enjoy myself. So I've been looking out in Colorado, which is a huge real estate market, McKaysville, Georgia. I really like McKaysville, Georgia, Blue Ridge, Georgia area. I like the woods. So um, a lot of good cabins out there. Got some houses in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And then, you know, obviously, you know, Nashville is where I started when I started investing into kind of real estate here um, from a short term rental standpoint. So the it's high risk, but it's, you know, obviously high reward. And it's yeah, you see, I think long term rentals, people typically see. Three five hundred dollars in, in profit, and with short term, we see typically around uh, a couple anywhere from fifteen to two thousand dollars in cash flow. So short term rental is just different in Nashville. It's hot just because you know you buy a condo on the riverfront five years ago at two hundred thousand dollars, and this and now it's producing anywhere from thirty five to fifty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. You know for a one bedroom, 685 square foot condo, you know? So I, I like the short-term rental game. I like destination cities, you know, obviously. And yeah, so have you so dove into the short-term rental market? What? I said, uh, have you dove into the short-term rental market much or is all kind of- no, no, short-term rental scares the crap out of me just because it's <laughs> so much more active. <laughs> like, yeah, me- I'll tell you this. Um, so we started in 2018. It was uh, myself and a buddy of mine. We'd moved down to Nashville from Clarksville. We were single. It just worked out that way. And we lived in one unit and we rented the other one out, you know, because we both bought houses there and it was doing so well. We were like, all right, maybe we should put them both on the market. And that just spiraled into this entire business. And it, it does scare people. And in the pandemic, you know, I'll say we saw cancellation after cancellation after cancellation. You know, you just, just a week straight of just like cancel, cancel. And it's like refund, 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 you know, but you know, I, we'd gotten on the phone and I was just like, Hey man, like there's a lot going on. Let's just adjust the strategy. And we adjusted our strategy to more of a, a long-term, you know, I wouldn't say long-term midterm leases. So we, we got on the phone and started calling a bunch of travel nurses, the recruiters, like everyone. Oh, that's we genius. Got yeah, we got the places filled for three to five months at a time. And as we were waiting, the short-term rental market just slowly started coming back, you know, like we, I, and I kept one, it was like 15 units at the time. I kept one unit just always open, you know, cause I'll take the mm. loss, you know, I really want to look yeah, at yeah. the data and see like, is there people clicking, looking, you know what I mean? Looking to get away for a week and Probably I would say at the end of July, we started seeing things just turn around, you know? Mm. So it's like, all right, this is our decision point. We're going back to short term, you know? So we would get people from Manhattan, California, looking just to uh, a new change of scenery. And I do think that short term rentals, you know, with people working remotely, uh, there's a lot of growth, you know, for that market, you know? How cool would it be for your work to set up a, a three month, you know, pretty much a vacation where, you're working from, you know, working in Colorado, you're working from Utah and like you can travel and like, you know, and, and, and the short-term rental market is kind of the way you do it, you know, because you can, you can get a home or you can get an apartment at a decent rate at other cities you've never been to spend a month there and go to another city and have all the amenities you need. So, yeah. yeah. yeah especially with like is, everybody becoming a digital nomad, basically. 
<laughs> yeah, man. Um, it is scary. It is, um, it is, like I said, high risk, but there's also high rewards when it comes to it. There's a lot of, I wouldn't say wear and tear, but a lot of turnover, you know? Yeah. So like, you know, and you know, I, I've had some bad instances where people wreck the houses, you know, mm. absolutely wreck them, you know, bachelorette, but, bachelorette you know, and bachelor parties. Whew. Yeah, especially the people. That I like did the, not miss those, man. man. I, give me the pandemic back. I don't want those back in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, they're coming, man, and they're a big focal point when it comes to the tourism of Nashville. But going back to, you know, it, I can hear uh, the woos from now. Like, oh, <laughs> they're big, man, and, and that's why, honestly, I had to move away from uh, Midtown because it was every night for my, you know, apartment complex in the Gulch. It would just be like, woo, and I'd just be like, I gotta get back to East Nashville. It is just so much quieter. But you know, we, we've had a lot of instances, but overall, more good than bad, I would say. So, I mean, typically, all the bad is like uh, the bad situations have always came from people in the city booking booking our places. You know, so like, I mean, during COVID was uh, you know because no gatherings of more than like ten people. And, you know, I had to, I had to kick some people out because it's like 20 people in the house, you know, and they're just throwing a banger, you know, yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I can't risk, I, you know, you can't risk thousands of dollars, you know, for someone's like pleasure. And plus like they destroyed the house, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, you got to get people in there clean and you got to get people in there to make sure everything's like, you know, working properly and things like that. So this podcast took a lot of weird turns, man. <laughs> which i kind of like yeah we're all over the place yeah all over the place so. no i mean i liked it because it was uh it was yeah we just yeah we just went down a very different rabbit hole i mean and, and to a degree I, I somewhat expected it just simply due to the fact like you're not plugging a book on here you know what i mean like it's not like yeah. you've got a specific product you're trying to sell it was just a, a fun conversation like this was cool yeah have you looked into the short-term rental market i know you said you you, you kind of stay away from it man the the thing that get like worries me about it is the idea of putting long-term debt on the short-term revenue makes me nervous. I just don't understand it enough. Yeah. I know there's money to be made in it. I lived with a guy who was bringing in 50 to 60 grand a year profit off of his primary residence being Airbnb. And he, he, he got an apartment in the Gulch and lived in the Gulch. Like he's running out his house a mile and a half from the Gulch. And he's, he's, I mean, talking about net of everything, taxes, Airbnb fee, everything. I mean, it's a 2,500 square foot home. So he was just running out to bachelor and bachelorette party one after another, just cruising through it. So like, I'm not stupid. I know there's a lot of money in it. It's just the thought of scaling scares me in that business. The thought of scale, the thought, like having one Airbnb doesn't scare me. Cause I can always like, if, if the world comes to an end, I can always find two grand to pay the mortgage on it. You know what I mean? What scares me to death is having 40 Airbnbs mm-hmm. and a pan- pandemic hitting again. You know what I mean? Like a, a more yeah. serious pandemic. And I understand that, you know, the last major pandemic like this was like the Spanish flu, which was a hundred years ago, but I don't know, man, like they can whip up, whip up something in a lab and throw it out again. I don't know. And I'm not saying Corona was made in the lab. I'm just saying they could. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, Talk for another day. <laughs> so I, I, I would say, I would say this, and 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 maybe I, I did a poor job explaining the business model. But you know, we from the two houses we went to fifteen, mm-hmm. but all of that, but we went and we grew from a property management standpoint. Mm, okay. So we invested into technologies to to in automation, 
and we were able to get you know more owners you know so like okay the debt is so you're not putting up your own collateral for the property no so i mean we we do have a couple here in nashville but we ultimately changed our business model to be property management you know which is definitely how it goes right because you know you don't have any debt you know you have expenses but you don't and it's a very lean model you know so we've invested into crm platforms digital marketing and we're really set to to really grow in 2021 to be very competitive and, and you know more than likely one of the top property managements um in the short-term rental game in nashville you know because we have the yeah. we we have that technology you know baseline and foundation you know we have the people you know so our our goal this year is is to be close to 100 properties and and i think that we can do that and none of the properties except for the the couple that we started with are ours you know so that's that's you're just, kind of you're just taking the prevalent. you're just taking the cream off the top yeah you know you know you you said it the best here you, you know earlier you were <laughs> not earlier today but when we were having coffee it's like a lot of money's to be made by being the middleman. You oh, know, yeah. uh, that's where all yeah. the money's so to be like, made. <laughs> and that's what we are, man. Like we brought, like, and the technology we have is like it's great technology. You know, we're able to 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 have a channel manager to put all of the homes on all of the travel websites. So hundreds of travel websites market homes on. You know, we have guest services for call centers and you know we have the maintenance support and the cleaning support and we have the growth kind of department you know so it's it's a full it's a full-on you know operation that you know we're looking to grow because we do want people to come to nashville and we do want them to have affordable ways to come you know and you know when and what's amazing about it is it's completely scalable and like anyone can start it you know so like no matter where you live, you can you can start it, you know, and obviously there has to be tourism that comes to your city. But right. all you need is all you need is, you know, one property and then, you know, you develop your scale reputation and you go out and get more. You scale it from there, you know, and the best part about it is your debt obligation is is zero. You know, yeah. you, you owe no one and you only make money. You only make money by if um, from you only make money through servicing the guest reservations, you know, so your owner makes money, you make money, everyone's happy, you know? So, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the model we went to, which is just drastically different, you know, because debt, I mean, having 40 properties with a bunch of debt associated with it, that would be outrageous and like completely, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't be worth the risk. A lot of people though, in the market, what they do is they, um, they, they enter into long-term leases and short-term amounts. So they'll pay a person that has a short-term eligible property. You know, probably there's some places in East Nashville, they get paid $3,000 a month to rent out the place and the company turns around and, you know, short-term rents them on their behalf. Interesting. You know? So they're, yeah, yeah, they're, so, they're in, again, a middleman just flipping. Yeah, yeah. So they, they flip it. So like, you know, you have, you know, long-term leases, Mm. Bring it in. You can rent the, you could, if you were to find someone on Zillow to rent that place, you could rent it for $1,400 a month. Yeah. But because of the short-term rental profit, you're able to go with a company that does what they call, uh, it's like rental arbitrage. Um, and yeah. what the, yeah, they'll, they'll do the, they'll do a, I, I've had people do 10 year leases, five year leases, and they'll pay you 27 to $3,000 to rent out those places. 
and they'll come in, bring in their own furniture, and they'll and bring they'll in flip their own market. And they'll flip up to thirty six, four thousand a month. Yeah. So, and there's their cut. They're making twenty five to thirty five percent. There's That's a lot of genius. different ways that people do it. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways people can do it. That's why so so many people buy short term rental property. It's because they can, if they're risk averse, they can go with a company like that. But if they want to maximize their cash flow, they can go with a company like us. You know, yeah. so yeah. it's it's kind of about what what you want. If you want the stability, go that way. If you want to do it your own, you go that way. And there's just so many ways to kind of skin the cat. So interesting. All right, Steve, yeah, we're running up on time. I got to ask you a question. Oh, I gotta yeah. ask you a question that I ask yeah, everybody. Up, Get excited. Get pumped up. All right. <laughs> you go back to 18 year old you, about to go to Iowa State, about to you know plant some corn. You know, all that goes tips and cows. What's this mascot at Iowa State? Uh, Cyclone. Okay, because Iowa is the Hawkeye, right? Yeah, that's the Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, 18 years old, starting ROTC. Knowing all that you know about yourself today and knowing all that you know in general, what's one piece of advice you give yourself? I would say um, continue to try no matter what it is in life. Like, because it only takes one time for you. Like, you only have to be right one time. You know, no matter what you're doing, yeah, for it to work out, man. And like follow your passion and, and really everything else will come, you know? So it, you can never give up no matter, no matter what happens and just continue to follow your passion, man. Like no matter if it's with, you know, women, you know, no matter if it's with work or, you know, whatever, like follow your passion and keep trying because it only takes one time, you know, you only have to be Mm. right one time. So, but yeah, man. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, all right, well, man. For, I appreciate the call. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. Um, for everybody listening, I'm going to have Stephen's uh, social media and such in the description, so you can holler at him, connect, see if you want to see if you want to chat, learn about short term rentals. I don't know. There's a million different things you guys can talk about. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. This yeah. was this was awesome. Uh, for everybody listening, manhoodpod.com iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. Give us a five star. And as always, if you want to reach out to us, info at manhoodpod.com. If you've got uh, complaints or constructive criticism, keyword constructive, can't just complain. You got to offer a solution. Info at manhoodpod.com. Or if you just want to reach out and I don't know, be on a podcast, that happens too. So outside of that, we'll talk to you guys soon.